still and know that I'm with you. Be still and know that I'm here. Be still and know that I'm with you. Be still, be still and know when darkness comes upon you and covers you. thank you for speaking to me through vents. And God, we pray that you would now speak to us through the message and through your word written in, in scripture. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the living word that lives in us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And now we pause for a message from our commercial sponsor. My goodness, don't you remember when you went first to school? You went to kindergarten. And in kindergarten, the idea was to push along so that you could get into first grade. And then push along so that you could get into second grade, third grade, and so on, going up and up. And then you went to high school, and this was a great transition in life. And now the pressure is being put on. You must get ahead. You must go up the grades and finally be good enough to get to college. And then when you get to college, you're still going step by step, step by step, up to the great moment in which you're ready to go out into the world. And then when you get out into this famous world comes the struggle for success in profession or business. And then, suddenly, when you're about 40 or 45 years old in the middle of life, you wake up one day and say, Huh? I've arrived. And while it is of tremendous use for us to be able to look ahead and to plan, there is no use planning for a future, which when you get to it and it becomes a present, you won't be there. You'll be living in some other future which hasn't yet arrived. And so in this way, one is never able actually to inherit and enjoy the fruits of one's actions. live at all unless you can live fully.
now. When I first saw that commercial in our TV room, I almost barfed on the floor. I mean, it's such a profound monologue from the philosopher Alan Watts. Um, we, we each are so occupied with wanting that we never have and maybe never are, for we never live now. Where I am is you know, he's with us in every moment on this journey. Alan Watts is making the point that we all want to not want. And then the advertisers are using that point to make their point. So don't you want a Volvo? We all want to not want, so don't you want to buy a Volvo? They just crucified Alan Watts or at least the truth that was in Alan Watts, and, and how stupid do they think we, we all are? Well, pretty stupid, right? Because it works. I mean, we buy Volvos and Buicks and Toyotas. It works. We all go out like, like stupid sheep and buy one more car. Sometimes I wonder if there's ever been a society as blatantly idolatrous as the United States of America. I mean, not even a Canaanite would fall for the idea that a Volvo could make you live fully in the sanctuary of the eternal now. Our society runs on wantonness. I want, therefore I am. Or maybe more accurately, I want, therefore my ego is. Our society runs on wantonness, and by that I don't mean sexual desire, but basically desire for anything other than God. And maybe even God. I mean, this is Psalm 23, which immediately follows Psalm 22. And last week in Psalm 22, we saw that David desperately wanted God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wanted God. God is the good, the tobe. And God is love, and His Word is the life. But I wonder if you could want for life in such a way that you could no longer live your life. I think that's what Alan Watts was, was saying. I had lunch with Andrew Trawick this week, and he told me about this American mining company somewhere in South America. He'd read about this, couldn't remember exactly where he read it, but somewhere in South America. Soon after they began operations, um, they were surprised to find that many of their employees were quitting after only two or three months of employment, and they were paying them really well, much higher than the average worker in that country. When they inquired as to why this was the case, that they were, they were quitting, these employees informed management that, well, in just a short time, in, in just two or three months, they had made enough money to supply their uh, needs of their family for an entire year. So they stopped working for a living and just started living their lives. It was a real problem for the mining company until someone had the brilliant idea of passing out mail-order catalogs to, to all these employees. <laughs> and it worked, it worked. They began to want for life. They stopped living their lives and began working for a living. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
can we want life in such a way that well, we can no longer live it? Can we want the good in such a way that we can no longer enjoy it? Can we want love in such a way that we can no longer know it or be known by it, that is, by Him, because God is love? Can we want God in such a way that we end up nailing Him to a tree? <laughs> Paula Darcy wrote, God comes to us disguised as our lives. Last week in Psalm 22, we certainly saw that this was freakishly true for David. I mean, he was literally the anointed, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. The events in David's life, they shadowed the events in Jesus' life, or, or the life that is Jesus. Jesus' words on the cross well, they were David's words from the Psalms, and Jesus said them first. Although David lived a thousand years before Jesus, but Jesus is the first and the last and the author of all space and time. It's like Jesus says in the Revelation, I am the root and the offspring of David. Jesus is literally the love, the good, the life in, in David. We saw that he lived his life in and with David, but, but can David and can we want the life in such a way that we no longer live it? Psalm 22, David wanted God, thought he lost God or was lost to God, and then he was like found by God. And now he writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want well, we seem to be almost incapable of even conceiving of not wanting. But if God is actually our shepherd, then all of our wanting really is rather uh, absurd. In the 17th century, Madame Jean Guion wrote this, you must utterly believe that the circumstances of your life, that is, every minute of your life, as well as the whole course of your life, anything, yes, everything that happens, have all come to you by his will and by his permission. You must utterly believe that everything that has happened to you is from God and is exactly what you need. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? I shall not want. That's kind of old English. More accurately translated for modern English, it probably should be, I do not lack. But if I do not lack, and I know that I do not lack, well, I naturally don't want or anything. And yet I might want to do everything, but not out of an emptiness, desperate for something to fill it, but out of a fullness, wanting or naturally desiring to, to be expressed. I, I don't want for anything. God is love, and God is sovereign, and so, of course, in each and every moment, God is giving me exactly what I need. St. Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul felt needs, 
But he knew God was constantly supplying his every need or his appearance of, of need. He had faith. In the words of Jean Guion, he utterly believed. Well, I need to utterly believe. I need faith. So should I want for faith? Shall I, I worry like I do that that I don't have enough faith? Um, shall I, I want for hope? And, and is hope a kind of wanting? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Well, I want to not want. So how do I not want to want to not want? Yeah, see, words kind of fail us at this point. But fortunately, God gives us pictures. When David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, every Israelite immediately had, had a picture. Exodus 15, after God has led the Israelites through the Red Sea, they all turn and they sing a song, a song of how God had led them to, quote, holy pastures. It often gets translated holy abode or something like that in English, but the word is real clear. It's holy pastures. The Lord is their shepherd. Psalm 78, verse 52, we read that when the Lord led the people to the promised land, he led them like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Yet in the same psalm, it records what every Israelite knew, and, and that was that those ancient Israelites soon began to complain. Some uh, old versions used the word wanton. They became wanton. They had a wanton craving. Uh, they began to crave what they did not have. And ironically, it wasn't the promised land. It was Egypt. They began to want because they gave up hope in God. They began to want what they didn't have, or, or maybe they began to want what they had but did not know that they had. Whatever the case, I'm sure that God wanted them to hope in the promised land, but they didn't trust God with the journey. When my kids were, were little, I'd sometimes come home and say something like this. Yeah, everybody in the van! We're going to Chuck E. Cheese's or, or Target or McDonald's or, or whatever. And my three-year-old daughter, Becky, would she get so excited that she'd literally just run in circles screaming, we're going in the van! We're going in the van! We're going in the van! After we were in the van, on our way, and everyone had quieted down, out of the silence, Becky would usually say, Daddy? And I'd say, yes, Becky, what is it? She'd say, Daddy, um, Daddy, 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 yes, Becky, Daddy, Daddy, ah, uh, Daddy, uh, where are we going? <laughs> I loved that. For at that moment, I realized that Becky had already arrived at her destination. It was just being with her daddy in the van. And Target or Chuck E. Cheese or McDonald's, well, that was just the gravy. The Israelites journeyed to the promised land. And yet, as we know, the promised land journeyed with them. It took the form of a tabernacle that was a sanctuary, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden and containing the throne of God on earth. It was the house of the Lord. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. And he said, repent, change your thinking, the kingdom is at hand. And he said, uh, don't look for signs. The kingdom is within you. 
within you all. That almost sounds like want what you already have, but don't have because of all your wanting. Well, I, I've kind of always disliked Psalm 23. And, and I kind of picked it this week just because I knew we were doing Psalm 22 last week. I've kind of always liked Psalm, disliked Psalm 23 because I found it so confusing to try to want to not want. <laughs> and uh, to be quite honest, I hate this picture. And this cross-stitch pattern sold in every Bible bookstore in the United States of America. I mean, it looks like he's kind of whispering to that little lamb, doesn't it? Hey, if you'd like, I'll buy you a Volvo. <laughs> Pictures like this were everywhere when I was a kid. Remember that I'm the child of a Presbyterian pastor, so they were literally everywhere. But even as a kid, I remember thinking to myself, sheep don't look like that. They usually have crap all over them. <laughs> sheep don't look like that, and this world doesn't look like that. The pain, violence, and horror endemic to this world just seems to mock this picture. I mean, even as a child, if I wouldn't have put it that way, I, I, I sensed it, I, I knew it. Sheep, the world, and shepherds don't look like that. My grandpa was a farmer, and he did not look at all like that. And last of all, perhaps most important of all, I knew that we got wool from sheep, but even as a kid, I remember thinking, don't shepherds eat sheep, particularly lamb? I mean, before the great shepherd led the Israelites out into the, on, on their journey, he required that each of them eat a roasted lamb. Mom, Dad, we had roast lamb for Easter dinner. Minor glitch. Shepherds eat sheep, and I don't want to be eaten. Well, maybe we ought to keep reading. David sings. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. If a sheep lies down in a green pasture, that sheep is like just absolutely stuffed to the gills. He leads me beside still waters. He gives us peace. He restores my soul. That's cool, except you can't restore something unless it was like destored first, right? You can't return it unless it was lost. My soul is my nephesh, also translated life. It's that thing that God made by breathing into the dust, the, the nephesh, or in Greek, the psyche, the soul. I think it's the thing that constantly wants. And what does it want? It wants to create itself and save itself. I, I think it's my wanter, my craver, my life taker. I, I eat roast lamb to save my own life, my psyche, my nephesh, my, my flesh. Jesus, the great shepherd, said, whoever would save his psyche, his soul, will lose it. But whoever loses his psyche, his life, or his soul, for my sake, will find it. Verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. His name is I am that, that, that I am. Not I might be or, or, or want be or, or, or could be or, or want to be, but I am. I am is the creator who creates with his word. His word is named I am, Yahweh, is salvation. Yahashua, Jesus, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Salmavet, 
Many of you know Allison uh, Schofield, who was on our board and is a prof at the University of Denver and a leading scholar, world scholar, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. When she preached last time, she shared how this was such an amazing, amazing word and, and that it really means something like primordial ooze. So last week we were supposed to get together and we texted and, and she sent me this text about this verse. She said, I like to think of it as though I walk through the valley, uh, though I walk through uncreation and, and chaos, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Well, death is uncreation. And evil is uh, the presence of the chaos and, and the void. And like we've been preaching, we are each being created. We are being created in the image of God. Last week we saw that David like witnessed his own creation out of chaos. The death and resurrection of Christ is the boundary between the sixth day of creation and the eternal seventh day when all is good and it is finished. It's the boundary between time and eternity. Remember, it's the boundary between the outer darkness and the eternal light. It's, it's the boundary and the door. Jesus put it this way, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. We're sheep. And when we pass through that door, we become something more. Even though I walk through the valley of Salmavet, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they come for me. A shepherd smacked his sheep with a rod, and he would guide them uh, with, with a staff, and both are comfort. I think the most comforting thing that God ever showed me was the day that he showed me he could break my arms. I've told you about it. It was like my Damascus Road experience when God pinned me to the floor and absolutely overwhelmed me with the reality of his relentless love that is himself. I, I've told you that when that happened, I felt this intense pressure in my arms, and I thought that my arms were, were about to snap. Only later did I remember that I always used to pray, God, I can't seem to hear you. So if I'm out of your will, would you please just break my arms? And that was the day I prayed to him saying, God, I'm going to resign. I'm going to stop preaching because I don't hear you. <laughs> See, it is so comforting to know that your will is not stronger than God's will. And that means that all the brokenness you encounter in this world does not lie outside the sovereign control of our God who is relentless love but is part of the Salmavet that he has called us to walk through on our journey to the promised land and the knowledge of who you truly are and who I am is. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness, the good, and mercy, relentless love, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Some scholars seem to think that someone messed up at this point in uh, Psalm 23. For the image shifts from that of a shepherd to that of a host preparing a banquet table. But I think that those scholars aren't thinking when they think that, because just think about it. Doesn't the great shepherd prepare a banquet? 
and put it on a table? Before we answer that question, let me tell you a story. Happened many years ago, um, just south of our border with Mexico, Robert and Judith Gass were camping on a beach in Mexico along with their two-year-old daughter. When Robert was suddenly awakened by the sound of four, four men, four, four men banging on the windows of their van, four masked men, uh, Robert dove for the driver's seat, but before the van could start, the glass was broken and a, and a hand reached in. He fought back. There was blood, but soon found himself pinned to the floor of, of the van naked with a rifle barrel buried in his neck. A man was shouting, money, money. The four masked men found Robert's wallet and began ransacking the van while Judith and their two-year-old cowered in the back seat. It was then that Robert says he muttered almost silently a prayer. And immediately and quite clearly he heard this, Thou shalt prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he thought, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And then he had a vision. He saw an image of himself serving these, bank, these bandits a, a, a feast. He writes that even as one part of him envisioned scenes of murder and, and rape, another part of him thought these too are children of God. He, he looked up and he realized that the bandits were teenage boys. And he saw that their violence was, was not courage but fear, and that in their fear they were missing some of the very best stuff. In what he calls a bizarre flash of insight, he realized that the serving table was helping them do a better job of stealing his stuff. He started saying things like, over there under the blanket you'll find a Sony Walkman and some tapes. And over there, there's a camera. Over time, he showed them everything. The, the one who spoke a little bit of English began to calm down. Uh, Robert said, would you like something to eat? They led him up long enough to open the refrigerator. He got out an apple. He handed it to one of the boys. The boys just looked at it for a moment, then kind of smiled and took the apple. Robert hoped it was over. But one of them jumped in the driver's seat, started the van, and began to drive away. Robert thought that they might be driving to their own execution, and then he heard this thought. What if you were the host, and these were your honored guests? He began to sing, and of course his two-year-old joined in in the singing. After time, he sang the only Spanish-language song he could think of, Guantanamera, Guajira, Guantanamera, Guantanamera, Guajira, Guantanamera. I don't know if Robert knew this, but the last verse of that song translated into English reads like this. With the poor people of this earth, I will share my lot. The young bandits began to sing with him tap their feet. Robert still thought they might be killed, but when they finally stopped far down some forgotten road, Robert realized that the bandits had driven themselves home. They said, adios, got out of the camper van, and then the one who spoke a little bit of English turned around and looked Robert in the eye and said this, please forgive us. 
my hombres and me, we are poor people. Our fathers are poor. This is what we do for making the money. I'm sorry. We didn't know it was you. Who did they think Robert Gass was? Well, Robert, uh, he looked in amazement. Asked, uh, they apologized again, and this young man gave Robert his visa and license, saying, we really can't use these. And then to the amazement of some of his friends, this young man peeled off some Mexican bills, handed them to Robert, and said, here for the gasoline. He then took Robert by the hand, looked him in the eye, and said, go with God. Adios. The four young men vanished into the night. Robert and his family held each other and cried. Now you may think, what a stupid story. <laughs> he could have gotten himself killed. Yes. It often happens that way. What do you think the good shepherd, the host, is serving at his banquet? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who are my enemies? Well, if I'm honest, God. He's my enemy. I take his life on the tree every time I sin. And my neighbors are my enemies. You know, the moment that I see them as competitors, that means the moment I see them as someone that wants something that I also want, I, I turn them into my enemy. And of course, I am my own worst enemy, for I'm a prisoner of my wants. It's my wants which ensure that I'm trapped and alone in the prison that is myself. I want to love, and yet love is the death of me. proud, lonely, old me in which I'm trapped. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. A table. Some speculate that this refers uh, to a shepherd clearing a high pasture of weeds and predators, and maybe that's kind of true, but David and all Israel were deeply aware of a table that God, the great shepherd, had prepared before them. Uh, the word table appears 20 times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Bible, and in every instance it refers to a table in the house of the Lord, the house of the great shepherd. To enter the house of the Lord, one would perform detailed rituals that centered around the sacrifice of sheep. You see, it's like the shepherd does eat sheep, or at least consume sheep. Fire would come down from heaven and consume the sheep, the goats, the, the wine, the, the grain. God is a consuming fire. Every worshiper was to identify with their sacrifice. They'd lay the hand on the sacrifice. They think they called it the shamak and identify with the sacrifice. And then with the priest, they would even feast on the sacrifice as if God were feasting on them. We are like sheep led to the slaughter, writes the psalmist. St. Paul even seems to quote the psalmist, or does quote the psalmist in Romans 8, and then adds, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
You know, God can only take your life because he first gave your life. Jesus is the life. <laughs> Not a life, but the life, which means your life is actually his life even though you think it belongs to you. I can't explain all of this to you, but between the altar and the veil, before the throne stood the table, and upon it was the bread of the presence. No one seemed to know quite what that meant, but 1,500 years later, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And I am the bread that comes down from heaven. As the great shepherd led Israel to the promised land, he fed them with manna from heaven and water that came from a rock. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the manna and Jesus is the rock and he bleeds the water, the water of life. The life is in the blood. That psalm we were looking at, Psalm 78, verse 19, the Israelites complained saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Bread falls from heaven and water comes out of this, this rock. And yet they develop a, 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 a wanton craving and they demand meat. And if you remember the story, God gives them meat until it comes out of their nostrils and then he kills them, verse 31. And then he atones for them and did not destroy them, verse 38. Through Ezekiel, God says that he will raise them from the graves and bring them all into the land, the promised land. <laughs> well, Jesus is the bread and Jesus bleeds the life. He's the meat. <laughs> He's the lamb. Crazy story, but I mean, maybe that's why God gets so passionate about the bread, the water, and the meat. Anyway, John 10, 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. That's how he feeds them. And so on the night that he was betrayed, the night that we all took his life, he gave his life, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it, do it in remembrance of me. In this is love, writes John. In this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, for all of our self-centered wanting. You see, love is not wanting and taking. It's giving and receiving. Love is a communion of self-sacrifice, and love is life, and life is joy. The life is in the blood that circulates in the body, one body with many members, Mexican and American, male and female, human and divine. If you don't understand all of that, you need to listen to all of our sermons from the Revelation over again. 
At the start of the Revelation, John sees a lamb. He sees a lamb standing on a throne as if it had been slain. The lamb is bleeding and making all things new. This is Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, the great shepherd feeds us with himself. And for our neighbors, he asks us to do the same. The life is within you. When you want for it and take it, you kill it. When you give it and receive it, you circulate it. You circulate him. And then you are no longer a vessel of wrath. You are a vessel of mercy. You're a blood vessel in the very body of the great shepherd. You're a blood vessel in the very body of the great shepherd, and he is our promised land. Well, the journey from self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-justification to the self-sacrifice that is the essence of love and the ecstatic joy of the kingdom can be terrifying and profoundly painful. And so it's tempting to seize control and to trap yourself in wantonness and fear. But if you remember that the great shepherd is always with you and that he is constantly feeding you with his very self, well, then I think it will help you to not want for you will begin to believe that you already have Jesus and all things with him. So you see, every moment is truly the best possible moment you could receive. God is making you into who you truly are, and he's doing it with perfect precision. You are so much more than just one more sheep buying a Volvo. The young Mexican man looked at Robert Gass and said, we didn't know it was you. And you see, up until that night, Robert Gass didn't know it was him either. And who is he? Well, he's so much more than just one more sheep. He's the body of the great shepherd. <laughs> he is man in the image and likeness of God. The Lord has prepared a table before you. Time to eat. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They are both, get this, they are both goodness and mercy. And you are the house of the Lord the body of the great shepherd. <laughs> hey, uh, was that a scary sermon? Maybe a little? Last night after I preached, I thought, whoa, that was a little bit scary because I was talking about a shepherd eating sheep, and then we ended up at this table, and the truth of the matter is it is scary, but it's scary for the opposite reason than we used to think it was scary, 
I mean, uh, the evil one will lie to you and tell you it's scary because God does not love you, but the truth is it's scary because God absolutely loves you. There is someone that has all power, all knowledge, that cannot be stopped, that is madly, madly, madly in love with you and is not satisfied until he enters into the most intimate and passionate of communions, a communion so deep and so powerful that you'll be tempted to think, I'm losing my life, and you are. You lose your life and you find it in the love of God. So not alone. <laughs> so very, very, very not alone. I think that's easier for me to believe than for some people because I had a good dad. So that sheep, that Jesus picture up there, I remember as a kid just thinking, well, it's just kind of stupid. I just thought it was stupid because God was like my dad. And I remember my dad just... He's a great, he, I just knew he loved me. And he used to do this. He'd do it to, my, to his grandkids, my kids. He'd do it to my sisters. He'd do it to me. He'd come into a room, and he'd, he'd see me, and he'd run over, and he'd grab me, and he'd pick me up, and he'd just go, and start biting me. He'd say, I'm going to eat you. I love you so much. I'm just going to eat you up. And you see, I began to believe that's the way God is. And that is the way God is. You are a journey on a path to communion with God. Um, and yet at the very start of the journey, he says, hey, I, I want you to sacrifice yourself to me, but first I'll sacrifice myself to you. Um, we love because he first loved us. And a communion of love is life, and life is absolute joy. I, I wrote this, and the sermon was too long, so I took it out, so I'm making it the benediction. Listen closely. Let yourself be consumed by love. Let yourself be consumed by love. Present yourself a living sacrifice, for God is constantly presenting himself as a living sacrifice to you. Love God without caution, without boundaries, without concern for dignity, rights, or privilege, without any concern for yourself. Lose yourself in love, and you will find yourself thoroughly loved. It's our flesh that always wants, and so always seeks to take, and so keeps us in bondage to death. But within you is a spirit that constantly gives. That spirit is love, and love is life eternal. You must lose the flesh to find yourself lost in love. You don't lack, so may you not want. In Jesus' name, all I'm saying is, believe the gospel. Amen.